Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne, who is off this week. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Act for a Post-Consumer World. My guest this week is Yvonne Savio, Master Gardener Program Coordinator for the University of California Extension Service in Los Angeles County. Welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, Yvonne. Thanks so much, Eric. I'm delighted to be here. Good to have you on. We've known each other for quite a few years now, I guess. Um, and I met you through your job. So let's start with that. What What is your job and, and what is the extension service to, to people who might not be familiar with that? Well, the extension service is available all through the United States, also in Canada and in Mexico, where I understand there are more Master Gardener programs. But within the United States, um, in 1914, there was funding provided by the federal government for farm advisors in each of the counties. Um, and it's through the statewide grant program. Um, and so the University of California is the one that um, administers it. And what it is, is providing the research done at the university, kind of translating it into usable information for regular people. Um, elsewhere in, in California and throughout the country, farmers are the ones that were the initial beneficiaries, but now it's regular gardeners. And within California, um, or really up in Seattle in the mid-60s, I think it was, um, one of the advisors was getting so many questions at his office uh, just for home gardening that he could not handle it. So he developed a short training course to provide basic research science-based information to his friends who were gardeners. And then they were the ones that started answering the home gardening questions. And so this was such a tremendous success that it did uh, proliferate. And in California, I think it was the mid-70s or mid or early 70s, that in um, Sacramento and San Jose counties, they started Master Gardener programs. So now within California, it's like two-thirds of the counties. Um, in California all have master gardener programs. And in Los Angeles County, in 1978, we received uh, funding from the federal USDA, uh, Department of Agriculture, specifically to help low-income folks grow more food. And so that started our program, which was called at the time Common Ground Garden Program. And we did have some very small classes of master gardeners that were uh, started by the horticulture advisor here in Los Angeles County. When I was hired in 1994, literally to restart the master gardener program on a much larger scale, um, we had... Uh, still some funding from the USDA, but since that time, through the various farm bills and 
um, other funding dealings within the university, our program now is funded completely by the Master Gardener Statewide California program. And so now, because we're funded no longer from, from the USDA and specifically by the California Master Gardener program, our responsibilities are to serve everyone in Los Angeles County, not just low income and not just for edibles. However, our master gardeners are still very passionate about helping anyone who's underserved as well as just dealing with the food deserts that we, um, uh, that there's more and more publicity about being too many places for us. When we had, I had first started the program, there were s certain areas of Los Angeles County that we literally could not start projects in because they were deemed to be too wealthy. And the, the sad news, of course, is that, um, especially pointedly in 2008, when the, unit, when the economy um, had such problems, uh, we now have master gardeners helping gardeners everywhere in Los Angeles County. So it's one of those good news, bad news things. It's wonderful to be able to serve everyone in the county, but it's very sad that we have to because there are people who are hungry everywhere in the county. And certainly we, you got to have all the pretty stuff in the garden as well. So uh, all the flowers and all the California native plants and all the wonderful trees we really foster growing of every single possible thing there can be um, in Los Angeles County. One of the, um, I just read a quote, I can't remember where it was from, but it, it uh, had specified that John Muir had said that you could walk from downtown LA to the farthest reaches of the San Fernando Valley without leaving the shade of an oak tree. And it just blew me away in sadness that we have so few trees, to say nothing of our beloved oak trees, um, that we could have done that sort of a thing. But, of course, that's what, that's what people do when they build their homes and their towns and everything else. So we do feel within Cooperative Extension that we are protecting our plant environment and trying to foster to everyone um, that they can have their part, however tiny, even if it's just one container garden at their apartment, um, that they are part of um, helping the whole greenery in L.A., what we call greening L.A. And such a worthwhile cause. Now, we're going to talk mostly about vegetables today, and that's not because I don't think it's important to grow flowers and trees. I certainly do. But I wanted to ask you why you think it's important for people, both rich and poor, to, to grow their own food. Well, food is pretty basic. I mean, and, and why not enjoy the fact that you can grow specific varieties of things um, that you find especially delicious, um, not just dealing with whatever happens to show up on the, the grocery store shelves, um, even at farmer's markets. Um, there is the tremendous advantage of 
the shortened time between harvesting something and your being able to take it home and enjoy it. However, there's nothing like having a 10-minute gap between your checking out that tomato or that squash or that fig or that pea on that plant in your garden and you're determining this is time to pick this. I'm ready. Let's pick it. And if it makes it into the house, because of course peas and lots of stuff will get munched up as you're picking them, um, whatever makes it into the house, that's what goes into that particular meal. Um, this business of picking a tomato and setting it on your counter for three weeks until it's ripe just is has nothing to do with the benefits of gardening. Yeah, no kidding. Do you have any favorite vegetables that, that you like to do that you've, you've found uh, have been successful here over the years? All of them, of course. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's the classic, uh, which is your favorite child? Um, it's really just a matter of loving what you can be growing seasonally. You know, what is going to thrive at that time of the year and therefore trying as many possible varieties as you can. Like I usually grow about 20 varieties of lettuce um, over the winter and we are eating all of them. Um, and I, um, you should talk a little bit about how to harvest things. Um, certainly things like lettuces for the loose leaf lettuce, you harvest just the outer leaves and you leave the little inside ones that are at the heart, which could be only maybe a, a half an inch or an inch in size. You leave those to grow more rather than waiting until you have this full head of lettuce, harvesting it, and then taking two or three or four days to eat that head of lettuce. And meanwhile, you have all the other lettuces that are there. So it makes it able to harvest, for example, the lettuce over maybe a six-month period in a bed that you have set aside just for the lettuce. And you plant them more closely because you're not going to let them mature um, you know, to their full size. You're going to be harvesting always, maybe once a week, harvesting those outer leaves. And so this way you always have uh, lettuce for a salad. If you choose to have just the little baby leaves, then you're going to have more plants available to be harvesting maybe two, just two or three or four leaves from each plant each week. But then you have enough to serve you for the entire week. Um, so there, there's harvesting tricks that you can use to always have that best moment when you choose to harvest your particular thing. Like tomatoes, um, generally we will always harvest them when they are very ripe, when they definitely give a little when you hold them in your hand. Um, but you can choose a lot of different varieties that will have different maturity periods so that you could plant them all at the same time in the spring, but then they will harvest at different times 
all the way through late um, fall, and especially with cherry tomatoes, those are the first, even though they usually make a very large plant, because the fruits themselves are so tiny, they will ripen more quickly, and then you'll be eating those all summer long, and they will also be the last to freeze if we ever have freeze again. In my Pasadena garden, we haven't had a hard frost in maybe seven, eight years. I mean, I could babble on about every single yeah, vegetable. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you actually started with lettuce because that's a favorite of mine. I mean, that that really does shine in the garden. It's easy to grow, and it's so much better than store-bought lettuce. I can't, it's, it's hard to imagine buying lettuce at the store now having it in the garden. But one you know, thing, the, yeah, the, go I'm ahead. Sorry, the, the one, um, your original question about a favorite, I think the vegetable that tastes most dramatically differently whether you buy it even at a farmer's market or growing it at home and harvesting it is peas. Mm. There is, it's a completely different animal. Whether you pick it, whether it is the edible pod and the flat one that is generally termed as an oriental pea, you know, like for stir fry and that sort of thing, or you have the edible pod like the super snap, which forms the large peas um, or if you get another, the kind that you have to shell, all of those, if when you pick those and you eat those, those are little bits of, of absolute sugar for the sweet kind and crunch all the way across the board. And even if you get them at the farmer's market, they feel a little wobbly already that's because they have started to dry out already. So as good as they may be, there's just nothing like a pea that you have literally just picked and eaten. I totally agree. They didn't make it in the house, the ones that we grew this winter. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And boysenberries are the same way. Um, I really have to control myself in the garden so that I eat one and put one in the pot for my husband. Yeah, because there you otherwise go. they would just never make it into the house at all. And I would have to just tell him, well, there just weren't any boysenberries. And he'll look at me very askance. But so, that's fair. You're doing all the garden labor, right? I mean. Well, no, that's not quite true in our garden. <laughs> okay. He does a little bit of work then. That's right. He okay. does the digging and he does the eating. <laughs> okay. Oh, then fair enough. Well, speaking of digging, uh, what should people think about when preparing their vegetable garden? Now, we're in Southern California, so we garden year-round, but there's people who may be listening to this who are thinking about starting up a vegetable garden when things thaw out. What are, what are some of the things, things to think about when uh, planting a vegetable garden for the first time? Well, any garden, but I think especially with edible gardens, you really have to follow through on the classic phrase of feed your soil, not the plants. You are literally creating a medium for those plants to either thrive or just barely survive. Digging in lots of organic matter um, is, is just the magic. And this is whether you have clay soil or whether you have sandy soil. That organic matter will literally turn that soil into a light, uh, almost frothy sponge 
that when you water, it absorbs the water, but it also provides all those little pores so that the air can also be in amongst the roots. And the roots can literally grow next to all the particles of soil and organic matter, and they can be moist, but also breathing at the same time. And that's what roots need. If it is so heavy soil, like clay soil, it's wonderfully full of minerals and all good stuff that are what roots need. However, the texture of it can be problematic because those granules are so teeny, teeny, teeny that there's very little air in there. And so the roots have a difficult time literally pushing their way through, but also because it holds all that water without the air, they tend to rot. And conversely, with the sand, there's so much air because the particles are relatively very large. They're boulders compared to the clay soil particles that the roots trying to find water get dried out very quickly. So in order to make the, the medium, um, shall we say the medium medium in, in um, um, combination of the soil and minerals and all that good stuff, the hardness of the soil and the lightness of the soil for all those air pores, the organic matter is what is the magic ingredient that combines them both and enables good drainage, but also holding on to the moisture. However oppositional that sounds like it is, um, it becomes more of the best of both worlds for your soil. So, and this, this is an issue of, uh, you know, sometimes double digging or sometimes not, uh, just to be, it depends on what your initial soil is. But once you do in my garden, what I did not do double digging. Um, but what I did do was dig it into the depth of a spading fork, um, an equal amount of, um, organic matter and the soil. And then of course you end up with a puffy raised bed kind of thing. I did find it was more advantageous to literally corral the raised bed by putting boards on the side because I found, um, when I had started my garden up in Davis, when I was working at the university up there, I, all the, however you pile the amended soil, it is always going to slough off on the sides at a 45 degree angle. And so consequently, you're wasting a lot of space and growing space, um, sloughing into what was your pathway, but also um, it rounds the top of the amended soil. And so when you're ha you have a difficult time getting water to stay there because it literally rolls off. Mm -hmm. And so I found putting the boards on the side um, enabled me to either keep a, a flat surface of the soil, the amended soil, or to literally be able to pull apart certain sections of it so that I had uh, furrows almost. 
And then I would plant, especially my corn, I would plant at the bottom of that furrow because then all the water, every time that I would water with a hose, it would go straight down into that furrow and it would foster a very deep root um, that would not get disturbed because it was up above. And because it was so well amended, I could depend on a good amount of drainage, which then means um, that's why many times people are told to plant the seed at the top of the furrow rather than in the furrow because they want to foster that drainage. Well, this is great for East Coast people. They get a ton of rain. We don't get that. And certainly in the last several years, it's been particularly uh, droughty. And so anything that you can do to foster an excellent root system that's going to have relatively uh, frequent moisture continuing in it without having to water every day um, or have depend on the rain, that's really what you need to do. So, you know, creating all this, this wonderful soil mass, and then once you dig it in, um, that's really all the digging that you have to do. From that point, you're just putting more mulch on top of the soil. And of course, it's automatically going to be shrinking because it's um, degrading, biodegrading in there. All the microorganisms are coming up and eating all that wonderful stuff. And so you're piling the compost or very fine-grained mulch on top is going to continue that process. And you're going to be fostering all the fungi and everything else that's in the soil, uh, all the mycorrhizae and all those good guys, without disturbing their bed, literally, by digging it up, even more than just with your transplanting techniques. Right, and I assume you're making your own compost, is that right? And do you have any tips about making your compost in order to generate enough material to amend uh, your soil with? You can never create enough compost. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I really end up having to um, rely on one of the uh, advocates in our area who has an arrangement with um, one of the horse stables that he takes the bedding and he builds literally a hill and it composts. And then after a couple of years, we get the compost from him. And even then I will find that it's not sufficiently composted much of the time. So I will put that in my pathways. And then after another year or so, I scoop it up from the pathway and put it into my bed so that I am both heightening the pathway, but then I'm lowering it as well when I dig that up and put it into the bed. So it may be a good four years old by the time I put it into my bed, because there is always the element you have to be concerned about that I, I literally created my own problem when I was first gardening, because I got sawdust um, not just the, the shreddings, you know, like the bedding, but literal sawdust, um, because at the time we had a lumber, uh, lumber yard, 
like lumber yard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew it wasn't a lumber mill, but I couldn't remember the word mm-hmm. a lumber yard in town that was pretty close to us. And so I got bins and bins of this stuff and spread it on the garden. And of course, the problem was that anything I planted was immediately starved of nitrogen because what I didn't understand at the time was that when you put this raw organic matter onto the soil, the microorganisms immediately steal whatever nitrogen they can from anywhere in order to decompose that matter. And what they were doing was taking it from the tomato plants or the lettuce plants or whatever else I had. And they were taking that to break down the organic matter. Now, six months later, everything looked fine. But in the meantime, it was, I literally was starving my own garden. So when you have access to that raw organic matter, you either have to put it in your own compost pile um, and, of course, you're layering it because that's the quote-unquote brown stuff. You're layering it with the green stuff, which is the highly nitrogenous-bearing plant matter, um, you know, the, literally the green stuff. Um, and you're, you're layering that in there so that you're providing the nitrogen for those microorganisms in order to break all that down. And then you put that into your garden. But if you find you have to put it straight into your garden, or certainly for uh, perhaps folks in the Midwest and the East who have a real live winter, as severe as they've had it this year, you would lay down a layer perhaps of the nitrogen and then put this stuff on it and then have the snow and everything else and all the freeze going on because then you're providing the food for the microorganisms as they pull up into that organic matter in order to break it down. So you have to be very cognizant of of what you're putting on the garden and it really is better to have that separate compost pile developing or several of them, you know, however many that you can manage. Now, what are your feelings about municipal compost? Some municipalities give away compost. Is that something that you would feel comfortable using in a vegetable garden? Not at all. Even um, uh, only because, you know, you can only trust the general public so far. And what they put in those green bins is not necessarily clean green stuff. Even for myself, I do not put weeds into my garden or my own compost. I put those into the green bin to be picked up just because potentially, uh, you know, three weeks down the road, those weed plants may in fact develop seeds. And I don't want that in my compost pile at all. Because basically I have a cold compost pile. I just keep piling stuff on And then in the fall, I have some folks that come and help and spread that throughout the garden or into the beds that have had it the longest to go. And so I don't even want to deal with the possibility of what just those weed seeds would do in my compost pile, much less trusting the rest of the city of Pasadena in order to put just clean stuff into 
those green bins. Because even with a hot composting that our municipality does provide, I'm not that trusting. And for me to introduce diseases and weed seeds and Bermuda grass and who knows whatever else into my garden, um, it's not worth the amount of good by virtue of texture and compost that would be in my garden. I have enough dealing with my own (laughs) issues without importing potential problems. Um, Now, if there is someone that can really um, feel that their municipality can provide absolutely clean stuff, by all means. I just, you know, you you get stung once or twice with something and you just decide not to even go there anymore. Right. Now, what about raised beds versus growing in the ground? It sounds like you're growing in the ground, actually, even though you have to sort of put boards around the outside, as you described. But what are the considerations that one might uh, think about when considering either in ground or in raised beds? Um, well, yes, I, I do have raised beds, but it they literally are attached, and initially it was dug up that soil that was right there. But at many school gardens, um, they're dealing with asphalt, and that's a twofold thing. Removing the asphalt can be tremendously expensive, And there has to be usually quite a bit of bioremediation with the soil underneath the asphalt. The simple method that we encourage for most gardens at schools is that they use the weed barrier cloth and they make sure that it's the correct direction, you know, so that the water will go out. It'll be uh, provide a good draining space. I didn't know there was a direction to that stuff. Well, there was at one point, perhaps no longer that's, that's the thing, but mm. weed barrier cloth, If when I had put some on one of my hills, because uh, in 1990 we had had a tremendous frost and it completely froze a whole hill of geraniums that my mom had planted, and so we were replanting that hill. And I found that I had put the weed barrier cloth the wrong direction, which then meant that the water did not go into the soil and the weeds did grow. And so that's what I'm referring to now. Now, perhaps current versions of the weed barrier cloth, that's not an issue. But it was the passage of the air and the water and that one direction the weeds could grow out, could germinate and come out through. Um, so maybe I'm talking about an old product that is no longer an issue here. Right. But uh, so now um, if I have a raised bed, and it, I, I had to do this because it contaminated soil. Where where do I get soil from? That's a that's a common question I'm, I'm asked. Yeah, and that's a real stickler because uh, um, even with new homes, um, you know, they scrape that soil. And it's just subsoil that's left. And then you have to find something that's going to support life. We really don't have recommendations for that, just because, even for compost, because it, the nature of it changes so instantaneously. Um, 
we used to have a list of, of the different places that would offer compost and we had to discontinue it because we started getting messages that uh, somebody had gotten it from a particular place and it just ended up being completely undone, you know, totally mm. smelling of ammonia, which mm. you know is not completely decomposed. But regular soil, it's the same issue. You just don't know unless you can, you have some connection that you know that that particular soil is going to be excellent soil. You know, it. you have to feel it. You have to grow in it for a while before you know it's it's good stuff. So I don't have a a recommendation there at all. No good answer, unfortunately. No. And yeah. things change so frequently right. that even if you find an excellent vendor a year later, they don't have access to wherever it was they got the good stuff, and so you never know. Right. What about testing soil? Is that something that um, you do? Or could I order soil and then have it tested? That would probably be a, a good you know, insurance uh, because really it's a point of knowledge of where are you starting with this new soil. Even in anybody who wants to start a garden at their home or, or you know, anywhere where the soil has already been there, this is one good thing and, and really imperative thing, I think, especially if you're dealing with a potentially a community garden, finding out what was there before. I mean, if that was a car repair shop, you're going to have contaminated soil, and that's going to be a, a real issue. Um, in fact, one of our community gardens, it was an old uh, red car, a trolley car track area, and they did a tremendous job at starting that garden and hauling in all sorts of biodynamic soil and compost and wonderful stuff. And even after five years, they did a soil test, and it was just so full of lead that they literally had to scrape the area clean and import everything all over again. So if they had done that at the beginning, they would know that maybe they should go to another site or have the bed such that it had that barrier cloth so that nothing could come up from the native soil. But back to vegetable gardening now, I know... We're in a we're in a terrible drought right now, of course, and I know you have strong feelings about how to irrigate uh, your gardens. So why don't we move on to that? Um, how do you recommend uh, watering vegetables? Okay, I have a, a threefold, really a fourfold um, set of individual techniques that I combine all of them together. Um, number one is. If you have a raised bed, you kind of can automatically create a berm, you know, a, a, a raised edge around it. Or on my fruit trees, especially the new ones that I have planted, I will create a berm that is three feet out from the trunk. And that means that that is the watering area. It's kind of like a watering basin. And whether it's for vegetables or my fruit trees, so that... I'm encouraging, I am putting water into that, and then it is soaking straight down so that the, you know, five-gallon size roots um, that were from the original tree, then those are growing out into that area. And just as far as like the three foot out from 
you know, a radius of three feet from the trunk. So it's quite a large area just to establish the basic root system for that tree. And in a raised bed, you have probably, you know, a three foot width by however long your raised bed is. And so you have that same kind of an area. And soaker hoses, I like the kind that is what's called a leaky hose, where the entire surface of the hose is literally weeps the water so that that goes out immediately into the soil that you have in your bed. And because you have all that organic matter in the soil, it spreads very nicely. And at each, you can turn those any direction you want. I find that nine inches or the size of a hand stretched uh, between each of the soaker hoses, however, it's bent throughout the garden, that provides for the water to seep out and kind of meet in the middle, you know, four and a half, five inches out, so that the entire bed gets irrigated. Because what you want to do is foster the roots going in any direction they want. The problem I have with most drip systems is that it is a very directional um, release of the water. And that means only in that perhaps foot square area that there is going to be sufficient moisture that those roots will want to grow to. Well, I find it much more advantageous for plants to be able to reach anywhere they want and not only for the moisture, but then by virtue of the moisture to be able to pick up the nutrients in the soil. So there's the soaker hoses, there's the berm, which then means you can have a little area that's flooded and soak straight down. The other um, technique that, now I do, I will say that I have, uh, my dad had put in sprinklers over all of the fruit trees. And of course, this was in days in the early 50s and 60s when water didn't cost anything. So he literally would run these sprinklers overnight hmm. so that there would be tremendous, um, you know, it was like rain. It was in a w very wide area and the roots of the trees would grow very deeply because it was uncovered soil. Well, of course, I can't do that on several scores now because I have mulch built up everywhere, so the water would never really get down. Mm -hmm. And But I do use the sprinklers once a month during the summer, literally to clean the leaves off of the fruit trees, because, of course, they can't accomplish their photosynthesis without clean leaves. And it also, just because of the breezes and all that, it does clean the undersides of the leaves as well. So the sprinkler is, is really the the far end of the spectrum, and, but it is for more of a cosmetic and just to help the leaves stay clean for the whole garden. So the other uh, basic um, irrigation technique that I employ is to use five-gallon nursery containers, you know, with the four or five holes at the bottom, and I bury them in between tomato plants or... Um, around which I will plant squash or cucumbers, um, all of which will grow up on trellises. Now I bury them so that the rim 
is still sticking up maybe two or two inches. And it's buried down so that the holes at the bottom of those five-gallon containers will release the water a good foot down. What that means, down from the bottom, you know, the surface of the soil. So what this means is that I can plant seeds and uh, transplants of like peas or squash or cucumbers. Well, peas, I only plant seeds, but around the rim of that container. And I will water around the top to germinate the seeds or to get the transplants to be able to grow deeply. And I also fill the bin with water so that that water is going out of the, of the container a good foot down. I'm The water that I'm watering the seeds and the seedlings from the top is working its way down so that all spring long, I'm literally training my plants in order to grow deeply, to follow the water down, and the water that's coming out of the buckets themselves is working its way up into the soil so that there is always a moist soil reservoir there for the plants to be able to reach. What this means is that when we have our hot weather, maybe 100 degrees for more than a week or so, and certainly, you know, 90, 95 for the rest of the time in the summer, those plants are very happy. They are not only surviving, they are thriving, and they're producing lots of squash and cucumbers and beans and everything else, okay? So the one addition that for people who don't make a point of really augmenting their soil with the manure and the compost and all that, is to put a shovel full of manure or compost into the bin. Only a shovel full, not, you know, don't fill it up halfway or something. Mm -hmm. But then when you put the hose and into the bin, you are getting manure tea or compost tea to come out through the bottom of that bin. So, and of course, you're, you've sprinkled the manure and the compost on top as well, so that when you're watering, both from the top and from the bin, you are providing this very mild but constant feeding for your plants. So not only do they have all that wonderful moisture, but they have they're being fed as well. So consequently your your bed is a a real feeding zone for your plants. That's a great idea. Now with the soaker hose, how do I know that I've watered enough? How do I figure out that that timing of how long to run those hoses? That because of everyone's soil texture and whatever amendments you've had in there Everybody's is different, so you literally have to just do it once and then, you know, test it, see what it is. Um, in the same way that clay soil, you will need to do more frequent watering of less amount because it will only soak so far into it before it'll overflow. Whereas sandy soil, you can, you know, run it for days and it will only make it out maybe a foot beyond the 
the soaker hose. So uh, what I find is that I will run it for an hour. And this, this is a soaker hose that will string maybe 50 feet that I have it go around one tree through a raised bed, around another tree, and then work its way all the way back. You just have to see what it does. Similar to um, the technique of figuring out how to water your lawn. You know, you put out little tuna cans or something and you see just how much did it water. And then you dig down to see how far down into the root zone that that amount of water did in fact reach. Mm -hmm. So you have to do something similar to that. Just after you've watered for a certain amount of time, whether it's a half an hour or an hour or two hours, then dig down and see how far down that water went. And then that's your gauge to use as, you know, now I do it only an hour instead of two hours. Or I do it two hours, but I only do it once every two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I know I have watered very deeply. Always, of course, the intent is to water very deeply so that the roots are pulled down and they will be able to thrive when it's 100 degrees. So fewer, so more deep waterings and fewer shallow waterings. That would be your, your advice. Yeah, the only thing that you would shallow water is going to be like lettuce, which will right. be only, those roots only go down maybe six inches at the most. No, I know everything you, else. Yeah, everything else needs deep water. You're going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Now I know you have strong feelings about mulch. What do you uh, use for mulch in the vegetable garden? Well, really, I use compost for most everything. I really want it to be broken down. But again, this this source that I have for the bedding where I have my perennials because my uh, garden is on a hillside and there are terraces where I have the raised beds. But on the down slopes, um, that's where I put more of that bedding, uh, the horse uh, bedding that's been composted, and also the pathways. So that will take many years to break down because it literally is just covering the soil. And of course, in the pathways, when because I keep walking on it, it will break down more quickly. But in when in, I'm dealing with a, the, the actual growing bed for the raised bed that has vegetables in it, I use only the compost mm -hmm. because I, I really want that to be, and it's a good three inches of it. It might be a bit rougher, but as I say, we pull that out in the late fall and put that on the bed. So it has all winter to break down but also because it's nowhere near as hot as it is during the summer, the perennials that there are, like the artichokes and, and asparagus, can have that right up next to it. And I use the manure there as well, the composted manure for the bed. That's what I put on first because I always want that to be breaking down into the soil. Now, what do you use for your fruit trees in terms of mulch? Same thing. Same thing. Uh -huh. I will put the manure around there because I want them to have that gentle feeling as feeding as well. 
Now, uh, when gardeners begin their vegetable garden, do you think uh, use seeds or seedlings? How, what, what's your what do you come down on in terms of, of that? Buying seeds or buying seedlings? Both um, really depends on the timing and also the particular um, vegetable. Anything that is uh, a large enough seed to handle easily, like corn or beans or cucumbers or squash. Those I will plant where they are going to grow. Uh, but also, uh, like tomatoes, I will always use seedlings. Uh, I will buy them in the four-inch um, size because I really want a, a good root system going on. Um, so I will start my own uh, tomatoes, you know, because I want those particular varieties, but I will grow them till they're in the four inch size and then I will transplant them into the garden. Um, at the early part of the spring, uh, certainly in the years when we had real cold weather over our spring, uh, over the winter and into the spring, I would get the very first um, squash seedlings. I would plant three of those around one of my buried bins and I would also at the same time uh, put in another three seeds in between each one of those seedlings. So what this accomplishes is that I will have those first three plants. They will grow to maturity and they will bear their squash. But in the meantime, those seeds will have germinated and develop. And by the time the fruiting of the first set of squash plants is done, the fruits of the seeded uh, plants will mature. So I will end up having two months, almost three months worth of squash in succession by virtue of that one-time planting <clears throat> of both the seeds and the plants. So there are many things like that that you can start from seed, different varieties, and then gradually transplant them. For example, my um, <clears throat> the cauliflower, I will plant maybe four different kinds, you know, the different colors, because you got to have color in your garden, of course. Yeah, right. Um, I will just uh, seed those in a little seeding bed, maybe two feet by three feet, so I can pay real attention to it and, you know, make sure that all the, the little uh, germinated seedlings are coming up okay. And then I will the first batch, when one is about four inches tall, I'll transplant that into the garden. Two weeks later, I'll plant another batch of them. Two weeks after that, I'll plant another batch. And the last batch, I'll leave right where they are, just one or two plants. Now, what this accomplishes is that I have, again, a long period of tran of bearing of harvesting because just the two, three weeks between each of those batches being transplanted, the amount of transplant shock and reconnecting with its new home, that enables me to be able to, you know, the delay in the production of that um, cauliflower is sufficient so that I can stretch out my harvesting season instead of having 85 cauliflower all at once 
or having to go back every two, three weeks and sow more seeds. So it's an easier overall process. I've gotten in trouble around the house for having, you know, more arugula than anyone could possibly want in a two-week period by not doing that. So, Right. And the real trick is to know which of those things, like lettuce, like arugula, like all of your kales, that you can be harvesting little bit all that whole long season. And in fact, there's four of my different kales that I'm still eating off of now, you know, uh, that have restarted with those nice tender leaves again that I planted at the beginning of spring last year. So there's a lot of this stuff. And like the lettuces, you know, you get that for a very long season. So don't bother that with the those things that will you you harvest just the outer leaves you can just keep harvesting on that those things you don't have to have that multiple um, seedings like you do with cabbage or cauliflower you know even broccoli you might do one seeding um, now but all my broccoli that I planted last September is now finally bolting repeatedly so that I really should put in some more broccoli now. But cauliflower, cabbage, those are a one-time thing. Once you harvest that, it's not going to come up with more the way broccoli does. Right. Kale. Now, I know you have also have strong feelings about how to plant a seedling. Could you talk a little bit about that? Okay, this is my big threatening a plant <laughs> so that it puts out new growth. Um, one... Uh, workshop that I frequently give and I, I just delight because I get a gasp out of everyone when I'm taking a seedling whether it's from a six pack um, or a four inch or even a gallon size now I I never recommend um, well for perennials you know especially California uh, natives I will suggest buying a gallon size pot but it's generally going to be the smaller the seedling, the better, because it's going to transplant the most easily into your new place where it's going to have to produce food. Mm-hmm. So if you have um, a especially um, like four-inch container that is so well-developed roots, you know, maybe you're, you decide now, uh, April is really very late to go ahead and um, try to find a broccoli plant or something because it really it, they're moving on to the real summer stuff. So you may find only one, but it's very severely root bound. So what you can do is this: you take it out of the container, you literally um, rip apart the root system. First, you start at the very bottom, and especially if you see that it's going round and round and round, you rip off all of those roots that are the ones that are going around and around. On the sides, you, tr- you loosen up each on the four sides of that container. You could take your two thumbs and gently pry it apart or actually go in there with your fingertips because what you want to do is end up with just the concentrated mass of roots 
not stringy stuff hanging down four or five inches. And you want to remove the potting mix that is in that transplant. You don't have to throw it away. You mix that with the soil of the hole that you have just dug. And you dig that hole two to three times the width of the container. Okay, so if it was a four-inch container, you're digging that hole a foot wide and a foot deep. Now, all the roots that you may have ripped off and the potting mix from that container, you mix all that into that soil that you now have loosened up. And then you hold the plant by the stem. You uh, kind of dangle it however uh, low you can so that you see where it was originally was the surface area, the soil surface. You hold that in this hole. You just suspend it with the one hand. And with your other hand, you scoop in all of that soil that you had dug out and mixed with the potting mix and those um, roots that you ripped off. Because the roots are going to decay and provide nutrients. And the potting mix is kind of, uh, this is where I get very anthropomorphic. The potting mix is what that plant remembers growing up in. So mm -hmm. it's like a level of comfort zone for that plant. So with the one hand, you're suspending the plant. The other, you're scooping back all that soil back in. And with your fingertips, you are kind of punching it down so that it, um, you're filling in that whole space. And you're allowing the roots from this plant that you now have ripped apart. You're letting all those roots hang straight down. And you're tucking all this new soil back into all those roots so that they are pointed down. Because that's where they're, you're going to want them to continue growing to establish themselves into this new soil. Now... Once you're done putting all that, uh, you know, kind of uh, pushing all this soil back into the clump of roots and in the rest of the hole, you want to make sure that it's level now or even just a tad higher than the surface level. Because once you water that, it's going to sink down a bit because the water is going to literally melt all of those soil particles and the potting mix and all that, melt it down so that it, because of the organic matter, it's still going to have lots of the um, air pores holes in there. But it's going to sink it, and that's what you need to make sure that you have not sunk the that section of the stem where it turns into roots, that that's not lower than the soil surface, because then potentially it could rot. So what this accomplishes is that you've, shall we say, stimulated or threatened that plant that now it has to put out a lot of new roots in order to establish it in that space. And because it's the combination of the potting mix that it grew in, it was used to growing in that, even though it probably had to be watered every single day because it drained so well, and the new soil that is going to be the new home for this plant, 
it's a nice combination. It's like a 50-50 um, area for it to be able to establish itself all over again. And then you build that berm around the plant again, even if it's just the four-inch tomato. You may want a berm of about a foot across so that you can soak that three times just with the hose in. You fill it with water. You let it sink down. You fill it with water again. That sinks down. It will sink down slower. And then the third time, the water, because you've watered it twice now, it may also sink down very slowly. But now you are assured that that entire area is well watered and those roots will then be able to connect and start establishing themselves all over again. And this is true with a tree. This is true with a little six-pack item. Once you do those three waterings immediately, it's probably set for a week or so. But depending on the hot temperatures, like now our temperatures are mid-70s, this is absolutely perfect time for transplanting. But go back in maybe two days, three days, and give it one more watering in there and see that it's doing fine. And then another week, and then you may be able to, it should be well-situated, and then you can move to a more regular watering schedule, which may be once a week for a tree for a good uh, two months, and then you can start extending it out from there. Great. Now, of course, we're trying to compress all of vegetable gardening into an hour. Right. And uh, unfortunately, we're running a little bit out of time here. But uh, I thought maybe you could talk about uh, some exciting things that are happening in your life. Well, let me put it this way. It's, it's too bad you're retiring for us. Maybe that's good for you. I don't know how you feel about that. But um, you promised that after you retire, there's going to be a new resource. I wonder if you could talk about uh, that. There's a resource, of course, for Southern California gardeners. Right. Well, it is exciting times. Um, I have been one of those tremendously uh, – uh, success, well, that sounds terrible. I was going to be successful people. My my point is I've had a wonderful time, luckily, being able to have a job where I loved it infinitely, infinitely much, and all the people, the master gardeners that I have worked with, and all the folks like you, Eric, that have been connected with gardening as part of Southern California and been able to get paid by it. This has been absolutely marvelous. And so certainly I that is basically changing. I am retiring on um, July 1st. And what I am going to be doing is providing my own website and my own blog that I'm going to talk about my Pasadena garden. I did this for some 14 years for the National Gardening Association online, um, and that still is archived there, though they took my name off of it for all of us that they, they had uh, the United States split up into 14 regional reports. And so I was doing the Southern California Coastal and Inland Valleys report. So all of those columns are still on the National Gardening 
uh, website. However, it just doesn't have my name on it. And mm -hmm. all those photos are mine as well. So what I'm going to be doing once I retire is developing my own website and blog. And it will contain a calendar section um, <clears throat> where everyone can uh, enter their own gardening events and then I will vet them and I will post the ones that I, uh, most of them that I'm sure that will be legitimate. And then I hope for this to be a real resource for everyone in Southern California to be able to know what is happening where so that they might be able to participate. And this I hope to be uh, very similar to what I, a service I've provided through the university, my email list. Um, of events that people send to me and then I send out uh, to some 2,000 gardeners in Los Angeles County. So I would like to have this developed and continued, um, but it has to be just from me personally, not through the university. Certainly, the, um, and so I understand from you, Eric, that I will have that be able to be posted when I have the website um, the URL and also the um, uh, the email that you'll be able to that everybody can email me at and also um, then subscribe, which then means that about once a week I plan on sending out a uh, an email just indicating what events have come up and of course my blog about my garden as well. Yeah, and I'll put that on our blog, uh, rootsimple.com, when, uh, when you get Great. that. Great. The other thing I did uh, want to assure everyone is that the Master Gardener program in L.A. County will be continuing. We have something like 325 Master Gardeners who are currently active. Um, over all these years, um, I've trained more than 1,200 Master Gardeners, and we have served more than a million and a third people in L.A. County. So with those kind of numbers, I feel very good about reaching yeah. those, those tremendous numbers and being able to uh, retire. However, the program will continue to grow great guns and uh, just uh, Google Master Gardener, California Master Gardener programs, and our website will come up. You just click on whichever county you're in. And clicking on Los Angeles County, it'll have the contact information and all that good stuff. Now, can you say a little something about the Grow LA Victory Garden Program? Sure. This is our Master Gardeners. Um, every spring and every fall, Master Gardeners conduct little mini, 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 mini Master Gardener classes. They meet four times and talk about all the basics of gardening in locales that are very close to them. And um, we've been doing this for four years, and uh, each of those groups continue meeting as that particular group would like to um, for what we're calling neighborhood garden circles. So the whole intent here is to give people the basics of gardening, and then give them a group of people that they can, if they would like, to continue communicating with and sharing seedlings and doing all that good stuff, sharing uh, commiseration stories about how their lettuce got munched by some snail, um, that sort of a thing. So 
we're getting to the end of our uh, season for this spring. There is one class that's starting on the 19th and another one on the 2nd. Let me tell you where here. And I'll put links to this in the show yes. notes for um, people. On the 19th, it's starting at Venice High School at the Learning Garden. On the 2nd of May, it'll be at Culver High School. and the th- Where I went to school, by oh, the way. Oh, very good. Yeah. Okay. And then the 31st of May, there's one starting at the Greystone Mansion. They have a new community garden up there, so they're using that. And if you'd like to get onto my mailing list um, so that you can get the announcements um, of this, that uh, well, they will take over my email here at work, and they'll send out announcements, and I think also get more onto Facebook and do that sort of a thing. Um, just email me, and um, um, I'll add you to the mailing list. And what's your email? It's yd, like David, s, like Sam, a, v, like Victor, i, o, at, u, c, a, like agriculture, n, like natural, r, like resources, dot, E-D-U. So it's Y-D-S-A-V-I-O at U-C-A-N-R dot E-D-U. Great, Yvonne. I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for letting me chatter on and hope that everybody gets into just having fun gardening. That was Yvonne Savio. We'll link to Yvonne's new calendar and website when it goes live, so watch for that on our website, which is rootsimple.com. We also will have a link to the Grow LA Victory Garden program in the show notes for this episode. It's a great program that anyone can sign up for and learn more about vegetable gardening. Yvonne's email is ydsavio at ucanr.edu. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also available on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening.